We're, uh, we've been working our way through the little letter of Paul to the Colossians, and um, we're getting towards the end, and we're going to look at it this week, and then next week, um, look at it one more time as we come to the end of that very small but absolutely potent uh, letter that Paul writes to this smallest church that's struggling in a culture where paganism is increasing, where the Roman Empire is very strong, and there's a Jewish backdrop, and here's the church trying to work out how do we live for the whole of Christ, uh, the whole of our lives for Christ in that context. And Paul writes to them and reminds them that because of Jesus, that Jesus actually changes everything, that Jesus changes our Monday to Saturday lives, that Jesus and the gospel creates this alternative communities, that the gospel means that we can live consistently. But when Paul writes to churches, sometimes there's a place where we want to grapple with what he is saying. And certainly this is one of the passages we're going to move to today, where people have wanted to grapple with what Paul said, to try and understand him, but also sometimes, to be honest, just to disagree with him. And so if you've got a Bible or you can find a Bible, then can you turn with me to chapter 3 and verse 18? I want to be thinking about living consistently for Christ in the areas of home and in the areas of work. And next week, what I want to do uh, as we finish the, the book off is to think about friendship. What does Christian friendship look like? So today is kind of like uh, home and work, and next week will be about friendship. But this is a passage that uh, some of you will know really well, verse 13, uh, verse, chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, don't embitter your children, or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you, and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. Those who do wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what's right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And you read that, and there's at least two questions that we might want to ask Paul. Why did you say that and why didn't you say this? Okay, those are the sort of two questions that we might want to ask when we read a passage like that. One is, Paul, why did you talk about submission? And secondly, Paul, why did you not say something different to slaves? Why didn't you say to women, you're equal partners, and actually, you don't need to submit. Just live really well, because in Christ, you're new. And why didn't you say to slaves... Actually, if you can get your freedom, get it, because we need to overturn the whole slavery context. In other words, why did you say this, and why did you not say that? Let me deal with the slavery one for a moment, because that's the, that's the way in I'm going to go through to get to this passage. When we think of slaves, and some of you have heard me say this before, because we've preached from these sort of passages before, but you know that in the Roman Empire at that time, when we think of slavery, it's really hard for us not to think 
of the African-American British history of slavery, which was abhorrent, sort of like a couple of hundred years ago, and absolutely abhorrent. And it's hard for us not to imagine that slavery is like that. Or we think of it, and, and who'd have guessed that in 2018 we would still be talking about slavery? I think that some of us who've been in sort of around in church for 30 years never imagined in 1988 that we'd actually be thinking about slavery in our own city. And there's no doubt that what goes on today absolutely strips away humanity. I think it's evil. I think it's opposite of what God would want. I think God will judge those who are involved in trafficking, in the sex trade, who are involved in that. I think there's no doubt about that. We've got folks in our own congregation who work for the release of those in those contexts. And I think they're doing what God would want in that context. It's hard, and it's not easy, and it's not simplistic, and it's certainly not romantic. But actually, that idea that we've got a situation where people are being trafficked against their will into context that they can't get free from and then used and abused and thrown away is exactly the opposite of everything that God would ever want for his own creation. I'm saying what you already know. In Rome at the time, it was a bit of a different situation. Some slaves certainly had that experience and some slaves didn't. In fact, for some people, being a slave at that time, way back in the first century, was not the worst thing that could happen to you. But still, why did Paul not actually have the vision to say we could overturn this system? Well, let me put it into a different context. How many of you know that actually our cars are a real problem? (laughs) Yeah? We know that actually our cars and our use of fuel and the emissions that come from it cause some of the illnesses that some of us here are suffering from. We know that. So why don't we just give up our cars? They're too useful. Why don't we just give it all up? We could get by, slowly. (laughs) Because actually, although all of us know in the ideal world it would be brilliant, Actually, in the real world, it would be almost impossible to imagine. Now, another generation down the line, our grandchildren, my grandchildren, or my grandchildren's children, will go, in the 2018 period, why did you know? How come you knew that diesel causes all these illnesses, but you still bought diesel cars? You knew that petrol causes all these emissions, but it actually causes all these illnesses. My grandchildren's children will go, why didn't you stop that? And I will be dead, and I won't be able to answer. (laughs) Because actually the answer would be very difficult to find. We know it's wrong. We know it's a problem. But actually, firstly, I can't change the whole system, and neither can you. Secondly, we're part of the system. Thirdly, what we need to do is from within the system think about how do we actually use what we've got. And in a sense, what Paul is doing with the whole slavery question is something similar. One beaten up little Jewish now follower of Jesus, Jewish rabbi follower of Jesus, could have said, let's overturn slavery in the whole Roman Empire. A, he couldn't have done it. 
B, he's writing to people like us, who are going, we're actually part of this system. And C, what would you do with all these slaves that are now free? So in a sense, that's why he doesn't go for the thing that some of us in our Western liberal democracy go, it would be the obvious thing to do. Just get rid. But what he does, and he does it with wives and husbands, and he does it with children and fathers, and he does it with slaves and masters. He reimagines the whole of those relationships and says, actually, in the context you're in, I want you to think differently about that situation. And um, one of the interesting things he does is he speaks to, at that time, those who were seen to have the least power, and he speaks to those first, wives, children, slaves, and then speaks to the husbands, masters, uh, uh, fathers and masters. And in a sense, the wives, children and slaves were the people who in many ways had the least power. They were the least able to change things. But he speaks to them first and says, actually, it's the way you deal with these situations that could actually transform something. And then what he does is he loads on the really hard work onto husbands, fathers, and masters. Now, what I want to do is think it through the masters and slaves bit. So you've got to go with me for this for a bit. All right, We've got to kind of imagine ourselves back there. There's one piece of information that is really, I think, is really interesting. When Paul is writing all of this to little churches, probably, well, certainly not as big as the number who are in this room right now, these were not abstract ideas. These were things that people in that church were really grappling with. And we know that, particularly in Colossae, because of one fact. That when Paul writes this letter to the church in Colossians, he sends another letter along with it. The other letter is much smaller, almost one page. And it's really specific and it's directed to one person. And that one person is called Philemon. Now, this is a situation. Philemon is, is one of those little letters in the New Testament that, to be honest, it's really easy to, you almost, you, you, it's easy to miss it. And then even when you read it, you think, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with this. But, but bear with me. Philemon is a slave owner in Colossae. And Onesimus was Philemon's slave in Colossae. He was part of the household and this young guy, Onesimus, um, belonged to Philemon. Philemon owned Onesimus and any number of other people, but Philemon was one of the leading people in the church. Okay? Onesimus runs away, and he ends up in prison with Paul somehow. We don't actually know uh, how he ended up in prison, but certainly it seems to be that Paul, who's in Ephesus, about 100 miles down the road, Onesimus has run away and found himself in that same context with Paul, and he's become a Christian. And Paul eventually says to Onesimus, they get on really well, but uh, Paul says to Onesimus, you need to go home. You need to face the music. And Philemon is in the church, and Paul writes to Philemon to say, this is how you've got to receive him. Now, before we get to that, imagine yourself into Philemon's shoes for a minute. Okay, 
Now, when we're in church, we all want to give the right answer. <laughs> all right, the answer's normally Jesus. But we all want to give the right answer. But I want you to think honestly, okay? So a member of your household who you have bought, housed, cared for, given a role to, and trusted, has stolen from you and run away from you. And your friend, Paul, is writing to you saying, you've got to have him back. How are you going to feel? <laughs> I think Paul should mind his own business. You might want to say that. You might want to say, Paul, it's all right for you doing this preaching lark, but actually don't get involved in my business. How else might you feel? Angry. I'll come in a minute. Angry because... Yeah. I think so punish him. Yeah. Because actually, if you think about it, if you don't punish him, what's the likelihood? He'll do it again, but also <laughs> the others will. And suddenly you'll be making your own tea. How else might you feel? You see, there's someone who cares. <laughs> we might need to understand why. Yeah. And then, once we've understood that he didn't want to be a slave anymore and he just wanted freedom... Let him go free. We, <laughs> <laughs> we let him go free. Fly, my friend. <laughs> well, that's not what happened. But um, let, me explain, let me show you something uh, that explains how Paul writes to Philemon. But before we do that, can I just ask, are you really warm? Very warm. Just right. Well, that's great. There's some of you are very warm and some of you are just right. That's fantastic. Um, we might just get, um, if we close the front door so we don't actually have the cold coming in, we can just let some heat out. We're going to show you a, a six-minute film that explains... The letter of Philemon. Paul's letter to Philemon. It was written during one of Paul's many imprisonments, and it's actually his shortest letter in the New Testament, but don't let its size trick you. It's actually one of the most explosive things that Paul ever wrote. Here's the backstory that we can piece together from details within the letter. Philemon was a well-to-do Roman citizen from Colossae who likely met Paul during his mission in Ephesus and he became a follower of Jesus. Then later, when Paul's co-worker Epaphras started a Jesus community in Colossae, Philemon became a leader of a church that met in his house. Now, Philemon, like all household patriarchs in the Roman world, owned slaves, one of whom was named Onesimus. And at some point, these two had a serious conflict. Onesimus wronged Philemon in some way. Maybe it was theft, or maybe he cheated him. We don't exactly know. But afterwards, Onesimus ran away. Eventually, Onesimus came to Paul in prison, likely to appeal for help. And in the process, he became a follower of Jesus and then a beloved assistant of Paul. 
And so Paul finds himself in a very difficult and delicate situation as he writes this letter. He's going to ask Philemon not just to forgive Onesimus and receive him back, but to embrace him as a brother in the Messiah and no longer as a slave. Here's how he does it. Paul opens with a prayer, first praising Philemon and thanking God for the love and faithfulness he's shown to Jesus, to his people. And he then paves the way for his request with this line. I pray that the partnership that springs from your faith may effectively lead you to recognize all the good things that work in us, leading us into the Messiah. Now, a key word here is partnership, or in Greek, koinonia. It means sharing or mutual participation. It's when two or more people receive something together and share in it, becoming partners. Paul's saying that faithfulness to Jesus means recognizing that all of his followers are equal partners who share together in the gift of God's love and grace. And for Paul, this experience of koinonia among Jesus' followers, it's not just an idea that you think about, it's something that you do in your relationships, which moves Paul on to his request. He finally brings up Onesimus. He says that he's become Paul's child in prison, meaning that Paul led Onesimus to dedicate his life and allegiance to Jesus. And so Paul and Onesimus are now family members in the Messiah. He's been serving Paul faithfully in prison, and even though Paul wants to keep him around, he knows that this unresolved conflict with Philemon has to be reconciled if they say that they're followers of Jesus, which moves Paul on to his bold request that Philemon receive Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, as a beloved brother in the Lord. Now, this is a really tall order. Under Roman law, Philemon had every legal right to have Onesimus punished or put in prison. And Paul's not only asking him to forgive Onesimus, but to welcome back his former slave into Colossae as a social equal, as a family member. This is way more than kindness. This is unheard of. It's freeing a slave and then treating them like a family member. It upsets the status quo of the Roman social order. Why should Philemon do such a thing? And here Paul pulls a brilliant move. He recalls that key word from the opening prayer. He says, if you're truly a partner with me, it's that Greek word koinonia again, then welcome Onesimus as if he were me. And if he's wronged you or owes you anything, charge it to me and I will repay it. So in this request, we see the heart of Paul's gospel message being acted out. It's first of all about reconciliation. It's just like he told the Corinthians. In the Messiah, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them. So in this situation, Paul is putting himself in the place of Jesus. He will absorb the consequences of Onesimus' wrongdoing. He will pay the cost so that he can be reconciled to Philemon. But Paul's message was about more than just a legal transaction. It's also about koinonia. Onesimus and Philemon and Paul are all equals before God. They all share the same need for forgiveness. And so the ground is level before the cross, which means that Philemon and Onesimus can no longer relate to each other as master and slave. They're family members. They're brothers in the Messiah. Or as Paul told Philemon and the whole church of Colossae, in God's new family, people are not Greek or Jewish or circumcised or uncircumcised or foreigners or uncivilized or slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all people. 
Paul closes the letter stating his confidence that Philemon will do even more than Paul's requested. And he asks him to prepare a guest room because he wants to visit as soon as he gets out of prison. And then with some final greetings, Paul ends the letter. Paul's letter to Philemon is powerful for many reasons. It's the only letter where Paul doesn't explicitly mention Jesus' death or resurrection, and this is not an oversight. He doesn't need to explain the cross with words because he's demonstrating it through his actions. Paul's embodying here the meaning of the cross. He has made himself the place through which Onesimus and Philemon are reconciled to God and then to each other. This letter also shows us that the implications of the good news about Jesus, they are extremely personal and never private. The fact that Philemon and Onesimus are now brothers in the Messiah, it makes their master-slave relationship totally irrelevant. The family of Jesus' people is the place where all are equal recipients of God's grace. It's a new kind of society, or a new humanity, as he called it in the letter to the Colossians, where people's value and social status, it's not defined by race or gender or social or economic class. In the Messiah, there are simply new humans who are equal partners, who share together in God's healing mercy through Jesus. And that's what Paul's letter to Philemon is all about. There's lots of things we could say, but very quickly, let's just say one or two of them. Number one, what Paul is doing in the letter to the Colossians, the piece we were reading before, is he's saying to people in church, you're going to create a whole new society with a whole new set of ways of being together, where you're not just being uh, taking on the, the cultural expectations around you and then somehow bringing them in and saying, well, Jesus will help them us get them, but actually you're going to demonstrate something very different. And it's very noticeable with the slave and master thing. And that's why Paul spends quite a lot of time, he spends much more time talking to slaves than he does to anybody else out of those six categories. Because he says to the slaves, I want you to think differently about the situation you're in. I want you to see that you're serving the Lord. I want you to know there's no favoritism. I'm wanting you to know that God will reward you. You that have no power, if you think differently about the situation you're in, actually you'll find it's a gateway to blessing. And if you work back then, can we put the slides up? If we work back, then we're asking ourselves the same question about what does it mean for Jesus Christ to be Lord in our relationships with our children? So he says to fathers, don't exasperate your children. Now there's none of us who are fathers in this room that's ever done that. but you know how it happens in others. <laughs> and I don't think it's just about fathers, is it? It's about how we parent, how we push our kids into a context where, and exasperate is a really good word, where they are tearing their hair out about us. What does it mean for those of us who declare Jesus to be Lord 
in our parenting, whether your children are 6 or 16 or 26 or 60. What does it mean to be a parent at a different stage? And if the surrounding culture, if one of the big things, and it's who would argue with this is, could we just be happy? <coughs> then we want to say, yeah, that's great, but there's more, actually. There's more about parenting than just are our children happy. There's something about are our children whole? Are our children thriving? Are we, as parents, those who have a responsibility, are we enabling them to grow and become the people that they need to be? Even if that means they're not what you would have wanted them to be. What does it mean to pair when you realize that actually what I'm doing at every stage of my children's lives is I'm getting to know these people as new people. I don't know these people. And when they get to 30, I'm trying to work out who are you now? Who am I getting to know now? Because you're not the same as you were when you were 12. But it's easy, isn't it, to forget? Am I the only person in the room that forgets that your kids are actually adults? towards middle age. I'm the only person in the room that really wants to say, could you take your cup in the kitchen? Then realize, ah, you can't say that. <laughs> but still does. <laughs> what does it mean to live it out with your, with your children? And, of course, it's not just one way, is it? If you could just push it on, thanks. What we're asking is, what's it mean for children to honor parents? To obey parents in everything for this pleases the Lord well. Clearly, that would suggest a certain stage of life, but what it rests on is that biblical command to honor your parents. What does it mean to honor your parents when your parents are 80? What does it mean to honor your parents when your parents have done the best, but they've not always been great? What does it mean to honor your parents when, honestly, you don't really see eye to eye with them? What does it mean to declare Jesus to be Lord in that relationship? And then with wives and husbands, it's not as though suddenly Paul's changing tack and suddenly going, we've got a new topic now. We're going to talk about wives submitting. No, 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 no. Paul's always said to each of us in the church, will you submit to one another? And what that means in church is, I'll put your needs first. What it means on a church weekend is, I don't have a problem with alcohol. So I'm going to drink because it's not my problem. Submission means, I know you do, so I'm not going to. Submission is not an airy-fairy thing. It's kind of like the decision I take towards you. Because actually you're really important and I'm going to put your needs first. And then to husbands, of course, you hear him say, husbands, love your wives. 
And as with all of these epistles, Paul would never say stuff that's so blooming obvious to everybody. He's saying it because it's not automatic in that context. You had your wives in Rome. You had your wives in the Roman Empire because your wives were those who would bring your children and you could get your family lying established. The people you'd probably love would be your mistress. That's who you'd probably love. And your wife, well, it's kind of like childbearing, home. But Paul goes to husbands, no, this wife, we're going we're to deal with each other differently than we would in wider society. Will you love this one? And will you love this wife, husbands, when your wife gets older and society around you says, in Rome, get a younger model. That's what Rome said. But Jesus Christ is Lord. I'll stay faithful to you. Even as you're getting older, and I'm not getting older, but even as you're... <laughs> We've seen all this before, and I'm going to just begin to wrap it up with this. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago when we were preaching from chapter 2, you saw that actually you're chosen, holy, and loved, and therefore put on clothes of compassion, of kindness, of gentleness, of humility, and of patience. And that's where you've got to put it on. And our situation is not exactly the situation in Colossae, but what we've got is a parallel situation. So some of you are in workplaces where it's really hard, and it's really hard to find dignity and purpose. It's really hard to think of it as a vocation, and it's really difficult to think of you serving God there. And Paul, Paul's words... 2,000 years ago would echo down the, down the years and go, but actually, it's your attitude. If your attitude is different in that workplace, then, and if that flows from Jesus being Lord, then everything could change, and the Lord will reward you, even if it's not great. And those of us who have responsibility for teams of people at work, how do you lead your team? And how do you lead a team of people at work where the culture around you just said the bottom line, sometimes the bottom line is the bottom line. How do you deal the, with the weak people in your team? The people who aren't just as good. Even the people in your team who sometimes you think, you're in the wrong job. How do you deal with your children? How do you deal with those closest of relationships? And as I said a couple of weeks ago, I want to just repeat it because I think it's relevant. We are not perfect. And so, as Paul said in chapter 2, we bear with one another. And I think in, when we're talking about general relationships, it's easy because you can walk away from those relationships. To be honest, it's not hard really to bear with one another in church because you're together for such a short time. Even the most difficult of us. Do you know what I mean? A couple of hours will do it. <laughs> not hard to bear with one another unless you're absolutely with one another. And that's where it becomes a challenge. Bear with one another. Carry one another's burdens. Tolerate one another. 
Give space for one another. Forgive one another. For those people in your workplace, the people who've done you down, forgive them. For the people in your family who haven't lived up to what you would have loved them to have been, forgive them. Love one another and let Jesus' peace rule. And then finally, as you remember, Paul said, be thankful for and be thankful to one another. These are the situations where the lordship of Jesus has worked out. And it's, I hope what you've heard is the decision that Philemon had to make about Onesimus coming back was not automatic and it was difficult. Not least because all of Philemon's neighbors would have said, oh, look at Philemon, he's so soft. And he could have been misunderstood, but Philemon was being reminded of by Paul, that actually in Christ, there's something different about this society. This society. And so we choose to live out the lordship of Jesus in these difficult relationships. The relationships that bring us the most joy and the most frustration. The relationships that give us the most opportunity and the biggest challenge. And here's the truth. I don't think there's any of us in the room that go, do you know what, just do exactly what I do, because I get it right all the time. If, if you're there, then please let us in on the secret, because we're just muddling through most of the time. But when our hearts are set on the Lordship of Jesus, it doesn't mean our actions are always right, but it means that actually, Lord, my morning prayer and my evening prayer are, Lord, help me, help me get this right. My evening prayer, Lord, I'm sorry for the stuff I got wrong. Because actually, I know there's a different way. And I want to live that. So when Paul writes this, he's not about putting people down. It's not about making people less. It's actually about everybody becoming more. It's about everybody growing. It's about those, that person you're married to is better because you're in their life. Because your children, at whatever stage they are, are better because you're the parent who's continued to love, pray, and do your best for. And your parents, let me put it really bluntly, they'll die knowing they were loved. That's the goal. They'll die knowing they were loved. And your workplace? Transformed in your peace. Because Jesus is Lord. So may it be.